speak of how my wife and I met. I just want to share that with you real quick, if that's all right. Um, I surrendered to preach at 15 and got a chance when I was 18 to go to a mission field. Went to Mexico and the Lord burdened my heart and I felt that he uh, had put a call in my life to go to Mexico as a missionary. And so I was nervous about that. I was a little bit concerned, worried. But um, I went on to Bible college, Bible school over in California and, excuse me, down near San Diego. And uh, my third year in, I believe it was, uh, we had an evangelist come to the church and um, my roommate, it was Richard um, Weasel. Wheezy? See, it's been a long time ago. And uh, this lady up here, whatever her name is, was, no, I'm just joking. But Richard Wheezy uh, was introduced to, uh, well, actually, the missionary, the evangelist said, hey, there's a, a pastor friend of mine has a daughter. And so he said, then they somehow started writing one another and ended up getting married. When they got married and she moved back to California with him, uh, she met me and said, I've got a friend you need to start writing to. And I'm like, no. I ain't doing that. That's dumb. And uh, I said, I, I'll know. God will send her to me. I was sort of like the guy stuck on the roof and the canoe came by. That was me. And uh, so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's just, that's weird. And uh, anyway, her dad came out to visit her and he saw me. He said, yeah, you need to start writing Miss Wendy. And so he gave me her address and he was a little more forceful. <laughs> And so, but I did eventually. She claims it was a year later. I don't think it was that long. But I ended up writing her a letter and uh, talked to her dad. And he said, yeah, she's uh, seen another guy right now as far as there's courting. And so I, I wrote to her. I said, I don't, I'm not worried about competition. <laughs> this is going to be a cinch. Anyway, so I wrote a letter to her and she wrote me back and said, yeah, there's another guy in my life, blah, blah. I think she thought it would scare me away. But it didn't. Um, I wrote her back again. And uh, we started writing to one another and then talked on the phone a couple of times. And then I flew out to meet her. And one of the men, the, one of the director uh, professors there in the school, took me to the airport the day I was going out to meet her. And I had flowers. And I bought an engagement ring. Because, yeah, she was in Ohio. I was in California. And so he said, um, what are you going to do if you get there and she's ugly? And I said, well, I'll give her the flowers and run back on the plane. I already got a plan. And so, uh, yeah. So anyway, I, uh, I got out there, met her and her family. And I knew right away she was the one for me because we got in the car and they were going home. It was dark. Uh, it was after dark. And so we're driving and I took a mint out, and I put the mint in my mouth. I said, would you like a mint? She said, sure. And I handed her the mint, and she popped it in her mouth. And I'm like, uh, it's still got the paper on it. She said, no, it doesn't. I said, yes, it does. <laughs> and sure enough, after a few minutes, the paper started disintegrating in her mouth. And that was funny. I've forgotten that one for a while, but um, that was good. So I spent the week with her and her family, and the Lord really impressed upon me. She was the one that he wanted me to marry. But I'm saying that to say, you know, sometimes when you're in a place like this, you think, well, there's not that many people my age around. I don't think I ever get married. You leave it in the hands of God. He'll work it out. Uh, you just have to trust him and uh, leave it in his timing. And so anyway, um, 
I, I had the engagement ring just in case, but I didn't feel led. I didn't feel ha I had liberty to ask her to marry me at that point. But we did take a walk. That, well, the night before I had to fly back home to California, um, I prayed all night. I, I remember it being a tough night because I wrestled with it. I wanted to make sure this was the one God would have for me. And I prayed and God gave me peace about it. So the next morning, um, we took a walk before they took me to the airport. And we were walking down by a cow pasture. So here's these cows right up by the fence. I don't know why they weren't on the other side of the field, but they're right there. Here we are trying to talk and the cows were eating and then watching. Like, hmm, this is interesting. And, uh, but anyway, it was there I told her I loved her. Well, she didn't say anything back to me and that was fine. So I got on the plane and I left there crying. You know, I was like, man, this is my life, my heart. And uh, I thought it would be forever, you know, that I wouldn't be able to see her for a long, long time. I flew back about a month later, I guess it was. It was on Memorial Day and uh, asked her to marry me. And I said, we've got two choices. In August, they let me off. I worked for Titleist making golf clubs. I said, they let me off for two weeks when they do maintenance. I said, we can either get married in August, which was what, three months away? Or we can wait for the next year for August to come around. She said, I'm not waiting another year. And so I hurried up and flew back in August. We got married. It's a long story, but boy, drove in a U-Haul truck. This was right after the Oklahoma City bombing. And so we had this, I, I went and ordered, I, I pre-ordered a small U-Haul because we didn't have a lot of stuff, just a few of her things and a few of my things from mom and dad's house. They didn't have any small trucks. We got this 40-foot U-Haul and only had like a third of it full. And uh, so anyway, we took off across the West to go back out to California and went through the Grand Canyon in a big old U-Haul truck and uh, stopped at all the site things along the way, you know, and they have made, they make them for little cars. So here we are, this big old truck in there, belching black diesel smoke. It was great. So anyway, uh, that was how we met and got married. And uh, she helped me through my last year Bible Institute. And uh, we ended up Go, being ordained and going on deputation in 1998. It seems like it was uh, a thousand years ago. But I thank the Lord for what He's done in our life, in our ministry. And uh, I always tell these stories not to brag on us or myself, but because there's a lot of people. I find that I'm not unique. Uh, most people are going through the same things I went through. And a lot of times young people are like, how am I ever going to find the one God wants for me? And that's faith. You just trust God. You follow Him. Do like we said this morning. You just continue thou. You do the things you're supposed to do and leave those things up to God. And uh, you saw it in Brother George's testimony in his life. How he left all that up to the Lord and God gave him the perfect woman. And so God does those things. You search and follow Him. He'll do it. 2 Corinthians 8, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and uh, Lord willing, I don't want to be long. Probably will be, but I don't want to be. It's not my choice. It's a big book. That's 66 books. It's a lot of preaching in here, isn't there? I heard of a preacher one time. The church called him to pastor. He was there four years, and he resigned. The guy asked him, what did you resign for? He said, I've already preached everything there. I'm like, are you kidding me? I've got 12 years, years in, and I've never even come close to preaching everything. Amen? And if I try to preach a message twice, our people pick up on it. It's like, hey, look here, preacher, you preached this before. I said, well, I just did it again because you didn't listen the first time. <laughs> Amen. 
Second Corinthians. I had a preacher one time. My, one my pastor said, he said, if it wasn't worth preaching twice, it probably wasn't worth it the first time. Right? Yeah. Amen. It's, people don't get it the first time. You got to go again. All right. Second Corinthians chapter eight and uh, verse one. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God. We want you to know about the grace of God bestowed in the churches or on the churches of Macedonia. How that in great trial of affliction and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance, knowledge and all diligence. By the way, think about who this is he's talking to. The church at Corinth. You remember what happened, why he wrote the first letter to them? This was a church that was on the verge of destruction. It was in bad shape. And now look what he's saying to them. You guys are abounding in these things. Isn't that a blessing? This is a success story. You're abounding in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and diligence and in your love to us. See that ye abound in this grace also. And he's talking about the grace of giving. Grace of giving. Giving or the, a grace is a discipline. It is an ability. And everything in the Christian walk is about grace. Uh, we can't do anything without the grace of Jesus. Amen. That's why I love the song, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, Greater Than All My Sin. I can't live through a single day without His grace. I just can't. It's impossible. And so abounding in this grace also. I want to start tonight uh, with an illustration that I read. It really impacted me. Uh, there's a, a fellow named Charles Plum. It was a U.S. Naval Academy graduate. He was a jet fighter pilot in Vietnam. After 75 combat missions, his plane was destroyed by a surface-to-air missile. He ejected and parachuted into enemy hands. He was captured and spent six years in communist Vietnamese prison. He survived the ordeal and now lectures on lessons learned from that experience. One day when Plum and his wife were sitting in a restaurant, a man at another table came up and said, You're Plum. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. Plum was surprised. He said, how in the world did you know all that? He said, I packed your parachute. Plum gasped in surprise and gratitude. The man pumped his hand and he said, I guess it worked. <laughs> Plum assured him, it sure did. If your chute hadn't worked, I wouldn't be here today. Plum could not sleep that night thinking about that man. Plum says, I kept wondering what he might have looked like in a Navy uniform, a Dixie cup hat, and a bib on the back and bell-bottom trousers. I wondered how many times I might have seen him and not even said good morning, how are you, or anything, because you see, I was a fighter pilot, he was just a sailor. Plum thought about the many hours the sailor had spent on a long wooden table in the bows of the ship, carefully weaving the shrouds and folding the silks of each chute, holding in his hands each time the fate of someone he didn't know. 
And I thought that is a beautiful analogy for what we're doing. In missions, you don't know who you are saving. You may not ever meet them this side of heaven. That's why I love visiting missionaries. I love to visit them and meet some of the people that we've prayed for. Uh, in in uh, Ghana, what a joy it has been to be able to meet some of the men uh, that Adam works with. Not long after they got there, Adam needed a, a transportation, so he called a taxi. The guy came and they ended up hitting it off pretty good. And, and uh, over time, the guy just volunteered to come get him anytime he needed a ride. So he and Adam spent some time together and Adam got to witness to him quite a lot and he ended up getting saved. And so then he started going to the church, which Brother Adam at the time was helping another missionary. So it was over to his church, Brother Summers. And uh, as they were doing that on a regular basis, they became friends. Well, one day, uh, one of Adam's sons, which one was that? Not, uh, was it Daniel? Daniel, they were playing in the house. They were all dressed for church. They're ready to go. It was Christmas Day, I think, that Christmas, or Christmas Day fell on Sunday that, that year. So the, the fella that in the taxi was coming to pick him up for church or pick the family up for church. Adam called us that morning, or Kelly did, and uh, was pretty frantic. She said that one of the other boys slammed the door on Daniel's finger and chopped it off. She said there's blood everywhere. And, of course, we started praying. We called all the church. We were all praying, but... We didn't know what was going on. We didn't get an update for a while. They were kind of busy. Um, but when we finally found out this was the story, um, that the minute it happened, of course there's panic because there's blood everywhere and you're trying to figure out what was injured. And then they realize what it is. They grab, I don't know if they grabbed the finger or what. I don't know exactly how that, that went. But the minute all that happened, that brother was pulling up in his taxi to take them to church. I mean, that second he was out there. So Adam was able to wrap up his hand, run out there and say, take me to a hospital. And of course, you're a taxi driver. You know everything in the city. He immediately knew exactly where to take them. And they were able to get that little boy the best care possible and get that taken care of. And now he's missing that finger, but he kind of, it's the tip, the very tip of it from that knuckle forward. And he likes showing it off. He goes around pointing, look at my finger, you know. And uh, kids are resilient. But I said all that to say this. These people that are, that are changed, not just their lives, but their eternity are changed because you gave. That's hard to understand. But for a person in the ship packing a parachute, they see that. The pilot may not know it. And that's another thing. When we get to heaven, the people who are in these churches, in the fields that you support missionaries in... They're going to come to you and say, you're that one. I know you. Well, how do you? Yeah, we packed your parachute. I think that's a tremendous thought. And the Bible has a lot to say, I guess, about uh, doing the work of ministry and caring for one another and stewardship and all of those things. But when God has entrusted us with something so vital, so life-saving, as the gospel, we need to make sure that we do it right. I was, I had um, Brother Humphrey print these because I didn't come with everything printed. I didn't know exactly what the Lord would have me to do. And so each day I prayed and I was just going to, I could do it out of my phone, but I don't trust my phone. That thing will quit on me in the middle and I better know what I'm doing then. But uh, anyway, he printed them for me and he saw the title of the, the Master's Folding Parachutes. 
He said it was Patton, I believe he said. Uh, one time they had an issue where these soldiers were jumping and dying because their parachutes wouldn't open. And so after it became an issue, he went down to where they were folding the chutes and he made all of those men in there working in the, the, the house there folding chutes grab a parachute and follow him. And he went and made them jump out of a plane with those parachutes. <laughs> I, I guess they all opened. I don't know the whole story, but I'm going to go look that up because I'm curious to see what happened. But there's nothing that will make you realize the importance of it than making you depend upon it. <laughs> and uh, I think that's why some people have trouble in some groups like the Pentecostals and Mormons and that wrapping their head around the concept that we believe, the truth of God's Word, that salvation is free, it's not by works. Uh, they're like, well, then what makes you work? Well, one thing is the love of Christ. We've talked about this. But another thing in my heart and mind is knowing who's depending on me. If I quit, if I fail, not only am I cast away, and I, I bear that shame, but also who... In my life, could I have impacted that I don't get a chance to? Whose parachute doesn't open? And to me, that is a vital thing. It makes me want to do my best. I want to share a few verses that have to do with this. We're just going to talk for a few minutes tonight on this. Um, Philippians 2, you can turn there if you'd like, but I'm going to go ahead and read. Philippians 2, 19 through 23. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly to you. Unto you that I also may be of good comfort and that when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. I think sometimes we feel that way. That there's a desperate need for men that care, for people that care. For people who will recognize the importance of what we're doing. And it is just as important as it was for those men in the bows of those ships to fold parachutes correctly and pack them in a, in a, in a kit. It's just as important what we're doing. Uh, it's no less important at all. Then 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Don't behave, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. And so if we have the attitude of what's in it for me, how am I going to benefit from this, we're not going to do the job we ought to do. But if we get the mindset, we think about it, how many people are depending upon us as a church for their eternity? I think it makes us be compelled to do a better job, be more diligent, be more consistent, to give more attention to what we're doing. Our work is for the Lord, but it's also for people. Luke 22, 26, and 27, But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, it is, not, is it not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. God, Jesus Christ, Jehovah in the flesh, became man. He served one of the last things he did before he got on the cross was to get on his knees and wash the disciples' feet. And what a tremendous mindset that is if we could understand our service, our duty to others. They count upon us. You say, well, do it as if your life depends upon it. Well, what about do it as if their eternity depends upon it? Mine doesn't. 
I'm going to heaven whether I give a dime to missions, right? Do you believe that? If you're saved, does giving to missions help you get to heaven any better? No, it does not. But will it help others get to heaven? Yes, it will. I wonder if we had a promise, if the Lord were to tell us, for every dollar you give, there's one soul makes it into heaven. I think I'd go empty my bank account. I really do. If I had that guarantee, God said, every dollar you give guarantees one soul making it to heaven. I would go sell my car and my house and give every bit of that so that souls could make it into heaven. I'm not saying that's what we ought to do, but what I am saying is we need to understand the importance. This is a matter of eternity. Eternal life and death. 1 Kings 19, 21, He returned back from him and took two yoke of oxen, speaking of Elisha with Elijah, and he slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. We ought to minister to those who are out there doing the work. Amen. I just did a semester in our Bible Institute on missions. And I meant to bring a book for you, Pastor, and I forgot, but I'll try to, to send you one. Please help me remember that on missions. And one of the things that the whole book is focused on is not just giving, not just praying, not even just going to be a missionary, but partnering with missionaries, communicating with them, talking with them. Um, the Bible talks about the relationship between Elisha and Elijah. Elisha washed Elijah's hands is one way it puts it. We ought to be in a, in a way of speaking, washing the missionaries' hands. We ought to be serving them. Um, every chance we get, we ask Adam and Kelly, what can we do for you? Um, what is it you need? And most missionaries are going to be very modest, very humble, say, oh, we're good. You know, God's blessing, God's helping but let me encourage those that maybe one day will be missionaries or you deal with missionaries. Always encourage your missionary to let churches be a blessing to them. Anything you can think of that a church can do, let them know so they can do it. We have questionnaires and during our missions month, we send all those out to the missionaries that will be at our church. And we ask them things like, what would you like to have, but you would probably not get for yourself? Things like that. Now, sometimes if they say a Ferrari, we don't do that. <laughs> um, that probably will never happen. But if we can, if it's within reason, we want to do those things for them. I remember a missionary one time said his son wanted a shotgun, but he never got him one because he realized after the two or three years of deputation, we're just going to leave it here for four or five years while we're on the field. So what's the point in that brief of a time having one? And he just wrote that down one time on a, on a questionnaire, and the church got his son a shotgun. And uh, those are the kinds of things. Sometimes missionaries, they whittle everything down to almost nothing and make such sacrifices. Uh, small things can be a blessing to them. Missionaries are leaving the field at an alarming rate. Their parachutes are not opening. And I'm afraid churches, one of the problems that have been, and I don't think I'm out of line here, one of the problems I believe has been the, 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 the starting to use mission boards instead of churches. I think it becomes less real to the church. They pass off their missionary to another organization, a parachurch group, that doesn't have the same concern and the same authority as his church does. 
And so the church ought to be doing those labors. But for years, we've pushed them off to someone else. We have basically uh, farmed out our responsibilities as churches. I'm just being frank and honest tonight. A lot of Baptist churches do not understand what I'm telling you. I know you do. I know your pastor and I know this church. But too many churches have farmed out. That's why it's important that our missionaries be sent through local Baptist churches not through organizations or parachurch groups. We are the ones that should be packing their parachutes. We are the ones that are going to care the most. We are the ones that ought to be on the front lines. Um, I know a lot of men that are in boards or part of boards or directors or, or representatives or whatever, and many times those men fly to the field, they see the work, they see the need, and they come back and try to convey that to the church. But that's almost impossible. The church needs to see it. The church needs to be on the front line. They need to have their finger on the pulse of the missionary. We need to pack their parachute. The other day, we had the opportunity to babysit for one of our, our ladies in the church. And uh, her son, how old is Noah? Two, three? He's three. And so we were going to take Noah to the firehouse because our, our homeschool group was going to the firehouse for a tour. And so she brought his car seat and she said, Pastor, do you want me to put it in for you? I said, it can't be that hard. It's not rocket science, <laughs> right? You just put it in there and strap it down. If I can't get the seatbelt to work, I'll get some rope. We'll tie it in there. She said, let me put it in for you, please. <laughs> she said, I'll feel better if I get it. I said, okay. So she did, she went and strapped it in and did it correctly. But you see, she didn't trust her pastor now that I'm thinking about it. No, that's not what happened. But it's like folding parachutes. That's her child's life. And she wanted to make sure it was correct. And so as a church, this is our missionary. And we want to be sure he's taken care of. We want to know that it's being done correctly. It's not about... You know, poo-pooing what everybody else does. We just don't like all those liberal Baptists out there. No, no, that's not what it's about at all. It's about doing things ourselves. I think one reason churches are dying is because we've become, uh, we've become anemic from lack of, of use. Our muscles, our spiritual muscles has atrophied. Because most churches don't do anything. They show up Sunday morning... Sunday night, Wednesday night, they give so that somebody will pay to have the grass mowed, which around here you don't have that problem, huh? But they give so somebody else will plow the parking lot or they give so somebody else will vacuum and sweep the building. They do all these things because they don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't have time to pack parachutes. And so in my view, a lot of those men that have the fields, a lot of these preachers that have quit ministry is a result and metaphorically their chute didn't open. Those that were responsible of keeping the men of God on fire and moving for the Lord failed them. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others.
Nobody joins the military with humble ambitions or humble aspirations, do they? They join the military, they're like, I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to go save my whole platoon. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Then they find themselves in the belly of a ship all day long with a monotonous task of doing the same thing over and over and over. This piece goes over here. That piece folds this way. And if you aren't careful, you'll be thinking of something else, your mind somewhere else, and you make one wrong fold, and that life will be gone. But is there a difference in the heroism of the man who flew the plane and the man who did the same thing over and over again faithfully in the belly of the ship? In my book, they're the same type of hero. Just because the man flying the plane has a lot of technical skill doesn't make him a better or more important part of that whole thing. The man folding the parachute was indispensable. And this guy by his life recognized that. We are folding parachutes. We're packing parachutes for preachers missionaries that are on foreign fields daily facing a battle. Some of them right now as we're sitting in here finish their day with no one showing up for their service. Happens all over the world. Possibly tonight a missionary and his wife will sit down at the dinner table defeated. And they'll wonder, is it worth it? Are we getting anything done? And some of them will make the decision. It's going on too long. And in the fogginess of their mind and the hurt and pain that they're feeling, they won't even go to God and say, Lord, is it done? Can we go? No, they'll just pack up and leave. Many of them come back hurt, come back broken discouraged and in some cases instead of filling somewhere else and doing something else for the Lord they just entirely leave the work what happened in a lot of cases their parachute didn't open because in Baptist churches across America we've become tired of the monotonous task of packing parachutes I want us to keep in mind three things while we pack parachutes and we'll be done. Number one, it's not for you. In Philippians chapter 2, 19 through 23, he's saying, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Don't ever let it be said of you that you seek your own things instead of those of others. As you go through the process of missions and faith promise, you fill that card out, don't be doing this making it about you. About how hard this is for me. You keep in mind, you are packing a parachute. 
I don't know what your missions program is like. And I, I, what we try to do is we have a monitor in the hallway that has all of our supported missionaries. It's a closed program, so it's not on the Internet. Uh, some people are in very sensitive locations. But all of our people can go by there. They can touch a missionary's name or touch a country and pull up the missionaries there. And every one of them have an email address where they can email that missionary right there through that computer. I don't know how many do it. I don't know if anybody ever has, but it's there for them to do. If our missionaries have Facebook and they're able to do those kinds of things, we try to get that in people's hands because we want them to be able to be encouraged. We're packing parachutes. We need to understand the importance of what we're doing. It's not about us. It's not about our church. I've seen churches, and Brother Humphrey and I were talking about this, some churches, they'll take on a new missionary to sponsor missionary just because there is a, uh, a view of other people like, wow, look at all the missionaries they're sponsoring. Well, you may only sponsor one. We have two. One's retiring. We're down to one. But we have more that we support and I don't want to be just the church that sends them a check and forgets about them. I want us to encourage our people to reach out to them. We have prayer meeting on Sunday evenings at just before church at 530. And my wife, she prints out some of the letters and puts them in a folder. And we take them into that prayer room and pass them out to the men. Give them a few minutes to read the letters. And then we ask them, what are some questions or some requests for prayer these missionaries have? And we call these missionaries out by name. And that's, some churches go far beyond that. I remember as a boy growing up at Grace Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia, and they no longer exist. But I remember growing up and hearing every Wednesday night, they would call out the list of missionaries in the field that they're on. And I memorized that. As a 10 or 11 year old boy, I memorized and still parts of that list I still have memorized in my head. Does anybody know if Al Sly is still in Panama? I don't even know if he's alive. When I was a little boy, we prayed for him. And it did something to me. I loved it when missionaries came. Not just because they generally showed pictures. That was, that was a help. But I loved it because I loved missionaries. My mom and dad taught me that as a boy. Get your kids involved in missionaries. Get your kids to write missionaries' kids. These kids are far away from family and friends. And it would thrill them to receive a little letter in the mail. There was not too long ago, I think it was the Rowleys in Papua New Guinea, shared a picture of them and their kids at the post office and said, it's been a good day. You know, Brother Rowley? Said, it's, you remember that post? Said, it's been a good day. We got a letter today. Somebody had sent them a letter in the, in the thing. That, that's celebration, buddy. Let's go out to eat. We got a letter. Wouldn't that be a blessing if our young people in the church and Sunday school teachers maybe could help organize that and pick a missionary and write those kids a letter? And our VBS, every year we have a penny drill. Do you guys do anything like that? We're about to stop that because there ain't many pennies anymore. <laughs> I don't think they, they're going to print them very long. But anyway, we'll have a penny drill, you know, and go back and forth. We'll raise almost $1,000. And instead of you know, taking that money and, you know, printing with it. Away. We, we could do that. And that's not a bad thing. We send it to missionary kids. Sometimes we'll split it up between some of the kids. I think one year we gave it to the rallies when they were leaving. Uh, I can't remember, but it seemed like we did. Send it to their children and say, hey, let your kids buy something with this. What are you doing? Packing parachutes. That's what we're doing. 
Because you know a daddy, he sees his kids cry themselves to sleep at night because they miss their family. They miss grandma and grandpa. They miss the things that they had in the States and their friends. It's going to break a daddy's heart, and he can't take that too long. And he'll end up leaving. So as you pack parachutes, remember, it's not for you. It's not for you. We need to do this with a selfless attitude, not a selfish attitude. Do it for them, but do it as if your life depended upon it. Number two, as you pack parachutes, realize it's not for you, but also realize it's not just for God. God expects us to support and encourage one another. You know that? That's why he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some, some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Correct? Amen? I know we're full. and We're about to fall asleep. Some of you have already gone there. But listen, we ought to be packing these parachutes because it's for others. It's for, uh, it's for uh, these, these people that are dying and going to hell. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. We have the last part of this verse printed or stuck on the wall. I think it's like vinyl or something. But it says, By love serve one another in our kitchen, in our fellowship hall. No matter how you love God, if you do not through spiritual means develop a love for others, you will not serve well. I heard a missionary one time say, I'm not going to the field because I love these people. I'm going because I love Jesus. You won't be there long then. We were in Mexico. There, honestly, the Mexican culture drove me up the wall. In the middle of the night, we had a 100-pound Rottweiler. That was our guard dog. She slept under our bed. And especially during Semana Santa leading up to Easter, they would have these parades and carry the Virgin Mary little idol thing through the streets. And they had these bombs they would say. These aren't fireworks. I don't, I'm not going to do them the, the glory of calling them fireworks. All they were were loud. And they'd walk down the street and slide in things at 4 o'clock in the morning. The Virgin Mary's asleep and so should you be. They'd set them things off. Boom! And when that happened, that dog got up. And that got me and my wife up. Because she'd get up and about lift that bed off the floor. And then we're all awake. For the rest of the night, you're having a hard time. And I, there were days, you can ask my wife, I was so angry. All I wanted to do was pack that car up and leave. I missed my culture. I missed my home. I missed my parents. Say, so why did you stay? The grace of God is all I can tell you. But there were some people who packed parachutes. One time we got a text or an email, I can't remember, from a church. It said, we've sent a package to you. Please let us know. One of our Sunday school classes sent it to you. I said, okay. We went downtown to the postal thing, post office and looked and did that for weeks. And finally, this box showed up. It looked like they had run over it, kicked it, everything you can imagine to it. But this box was there. And so we, we were excited. What did they, what did they send us? Remember this? We took it home and we just kind of, Wendy, she's different from me. I'm like, let's tear into it. She's like, no, we want to hold it for as long as we can. The anticipation is what she loves about it. I'm like, you're a nut. I'm going to peek while she's not looking. But anyway, we get it home and we open it up. Guess what was in there? 
a dumb pinata. <laughs> I'm in Mexico. I can go to any street on the block and pick out a pinata. Right? But these kids handmade a paper mache pinata, put it in a box, and spent 45 bucks smelling it to us. He said, I bet you were angry. No, I wept. As I thought about these kids and what they were trying to do and what their church was teaching them to pack a pinata or pack a pinata, pick, pack a parachute. <laughs> pack a parachute. If it's a pinata, it's a parachute. <laughs> that would actually be a good pinata there. <laughs> parachute. Anyway, I'll let you guys work on that one. But packing a parachute. Boy, it encouraged us. It really did. There were times we'd get notes from churches, you know, we're praying for you, letters from people, whatever. I mean, anything helped. Every little thing helped us out to make us know they're thinking about us. We're not forgotten. And so we pack parachutes. Third thing I want us to remember as we pack parachutes is it must be done right. It must be done right. I was at a, church, at a home in Ghana at a missionary's house. They allowed me to stay with them. And they put me in their school room for their homeschool. And they have on the wall, they had all kinds of quotes. And so I was in there taking pictures of every quote because I'm like, I love all these. One of them, I'll never forget it. I've made it sort of a motto in my life. And it goes like this. Small things done consistently consistently make the biggest change. Small things done consistently consistently make the biggest change. I watch how you conduct services. Your music director does things a certain way. I see how he's up here and as the pastor's doing things and he's coming up, he hands him a book, turn to the right page. You say, I've never noticed that before. I did. Small things done consistently consistently make the biggest change. Find something even small you can do and do it. And do it consistently. Attention to detail. You know, that's something that Christians has got to get back to. I remember we were down in Kentucky recently. Well, I say recently. I say that all the time the other day. It could have been 10 years ago. But we were at a church and talking to a preacher there. We were talking about the camp I went to when I was a teenager. I went to youth camp. And the, the dorms were made out of cross ties. I mean, these things are full of creosote. They stink and everything. And so that's what we slept in as kids. We didn't care. We had a blast. And so he said, yeah, the other day, you know, went over there and they were rotten. They were falling apart and they were falling in and, you know, the windows were all messed up. It was terrible. He said, so I went to the church and asked if we could get some block and rebuild them and make some nice block dorms. And he said, in the process of discussing it with the church, somebody in the church says, why? It's good enough for who it's for. And he said, I thought about that for a minute. And he said, I asked them, who is it for? In your mind, it's for the teenagers and the kids. But it ought to be for the Lord. Is it good enough for who it's for? God has decreed in His Word how things ought to be done. We've talked about that. But He says in 1 Corinthians 3, He shares... The, the parable there of the wood, hay, and stubble, gold, uh, silver, and precious stones. What is our work going to be made of? Make sure that when we pack parachutes that it is done right. And then lastly, 
As we pack parachutes, let us remember that it must be done faithfully. Luke 17, verse 10. This is a verse you probably ought to look at and underline. This, when I read this one day, this has been years ago now, it jumped out at me. You ever have one of those verses jumps out at you and drop kicks you right in the face? This dad did that for me. Luke 17 and 10. So likewise ye, you, that means you, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say. So this ought to be your attitude. After you've done everything God has said to do, this ought to be what you say. We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. That's, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? I mean, we want to get to heaven and God say, I couldn't have done it without you. God said our attitude ought to be, I'm just an unprofitable servant. I did what was my duty to do. I wrote this down and I'm going to end with this. Let the outcome be your reward. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. God, we ask for your help. Lord, if we're going to pack parachutes, we're going to help those who need it the most. Lord, we're going to have to keep the right heart and the spiritual focus. Help us to love. We'll thank you in Jesus' name.